But this sermon should be um, not as uh, eventful as last week, and uh, hopefully not as long. I looked down at the end of it, and it was like 50 minutes, and I was like, those poor people. Um, so would you stand as I read? Not really. I didn't feel, I didn't, no pity for you. Uh, Luke 21, verses 34 through 38, and hear the word of God. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place, and so to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for this time set apart to worship and now to come under your word I pray, God, that you would give us surrendered wills, surrendered hearts to what you will say, and that your Holy Spirit would now prepare the ground, even as you have been throughout the week, that you would open our ears, that you would give sight to our spiritual eyes, that you would give us hearts that are soft to your movement, your word, your touch. And so, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor And remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said, heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, would you speak to us? The only true living God, would you speak? Father in heaven, speak to us. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we spent our time um, in a worthy endeavor in examining the, the bulk of Luke chapter 21, Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And it's only called the Olivet Discourse because it's in the proximity of the Mount of Olives, as we just read here at the end of the chapter Uh, And so Jesus has been talking about, primarily talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, of what the the occurrences that are happening that will happen. So this is around uh, early 30s AD, so roughly 40 years in the future. Jesus is operating as the prophet, and he articulates the closing, if you will, of the former age and the opening up of the age of uh, the spirit and of the church and of the really the last days in a way. So he is foretelling the destruction of the temple. And so he's speaking specifically to that generation. Um, but there are things, one, that for us to glean, for us to learn from that, as we've talked about. Um, but also there is an application. We can glean truths, but we can also apply the truths because just like those who were caught in Jerusalem when the Roman army surrounded and they besieged and eventually those people died or those who were listening, those who were paying attention fled, 
They fled from the wrath to come. That we can learn, we can learn the same lesson because that day, in one way or the other, that day will come for us. It might not be a Roman, obviously doubtful, never know. Doubtful it's going to be a Roman army that's going to encircle us physically and besiege us. Um, But we know that the day of our death is coming. And if we don't die, we know that the day of the Lord is coming. The second return of Jesus. And so in light of that, the same lessons that Jesus is teaching to his apostles, be on guard, keep on the alert, are lessons for us. Lessons that show up over and over and over again in Scripture. That we need to be people marked by watchfulness. A people marked by preparedness. Now, I've, you know, since we started being the epicenter of all of the world's earthquakes, is what it feels like, uh, I've started following the South Carolina Emergency Management Department on, like, social media, on, like, Facebook and stuff. And, and so every now and again, they'll, you know, they'll say, well, we just had, we've had, you know, 2,104 since five minutes ago is what it feels like sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> but that you, 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 you follow them and they, they're always preaching to you. They're always preaching to you preparedness. Be prepared. Be prepared. And living in South Carolina, I never thought I would have to be prepared for earthquakes. So you're always taught to be prepared for hurricanes. You guys know, right? Um, you, you, some of you were here for Hugo, as I was. Um, so, but this is not that kind of preparedness. We don't prepare for the day of the Lord by hoarding baked beans, Okay. Or getting giant bags of rice. You should do that as a person anyways, right? Um, you know, but, but that's not the preparedness that we're talking about. Because our greatest threat, the question we have to ask, I guess, is what is our greatest threat? In these days, right, between the first coming and the second coming of our Lord Jesus, what is our greatest threat? Well, you could mark them too, right? Two. What, what would you say? Non-rhetorical don't abuse it, question. Uh, what is our greatest threat as Christians in this world? We have an adversary. Satan, Satan right? He's prowling around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, his op- now this is a different subject, but his operation now is not as free, free and un, un, uh, untethered as it once was because of the ascension of our Lord Jesus to the right hand of God the Father. But he remains our adversary but we have a, and, and that's an external, right? It's external, it's clear. He is, now his operations are very subtle. He comes as an angel of light. And so oftentimes people are deceived by the operations of Satan. He doesn't come as he does in like a Bugs Bunny com- cartoon with a pitchfork and horns and a forked tail. Like it's not, it's not obvious, but he is our adversary very clearly. What is our second adversary? Much more insidious. Sin? Where does sin show up? In our hearts. When we think about what must we be on the lookout for right now in this age? What could corrupt us? What could sideline us? Satan, but Satan's tool is sin. And sin shows up in our hearts. And so if you want to say, what is your greatest enemy? Now, I don't, I don't want you to do this right now. But go into the bathroom and stare at the mirror. And here is your greatest enemy. But too often, when we talk about watchfulness, Christians are focused on things external to us. 
as though they were somehow a greater threat to our spiritual well-being than that which is happening in our hearts. Dear ones, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is not a graver threat to you than what you do on your computer when no one else is looking. The invasion of Ukraine by Russia is not a graver threat to you than the gossip that so easily sprouts up under false pretenses of prayer requests. World War III doesn't threaten us as much as greed and covetousness and idolatry that flows from the heart. But too often we don't believe it. We don't believe that bare fact. World War III won't send you to hell, but sin will. World War III might dispatch you to glory or hell and death, but the function will be accomplished whether you are in Christ or outside of Christ. So when Jesus comes to his apostles and he says, be on guard, or as some other, other translations say, watch yourselves so helpfully. Be on your guard or watch yourselves. Pay attention. Pay attention to the world around you, yes, but pay attention to your own hearts. That's what Jesus is telling them. Be on guard so that your hearts, you, now, there's a, there's a line to be walked here. The best, the best way that you can live your life following Jesus is to look at Jesus. Okay? When I was learning to drive, some would say I'm still learning to drive, but at, when I was learning to drive, and my, my mom would be in the seat beside me, or my dad or whoever, and, uh, but it was very obvious with my mom. My dad had a little bit more, but my, my mom, when I would, something would happen, and I wouldn't know what, what was happening, but all of a sudden, she would just go, you know, she'd, she'd grab that thing, and you'd feel the car shake, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on, but what I learned is that when you're learning to drive, is that you can't look, you know, I would, I would sort of just look to the hood emblem, right? Look to the very edge of the front hood and try to j- drive that way. If you go, don't do this. Um, but if you go, if you try to drive that way going home, you're going to be swerving all over the road. The way that you go straight down the road is that you look out ahead of you, right? You don't pay attention to the front nose of your car. You look ahead of you. So this sermon is not about an unhealthy introspection, right? It's not about overly examining yourself so much so that you lose sight of Jesus. But watchfulness Watchfulness means I need to be on the alert to the things in my life that would cause my, uh, my eyes to drop off of Jesus. I need to be looking for the things that are going to divert my attention. Because as they divert my attention, they're going to numb my heart. And as my heart grows numb, I'm going to grow cold to the Lord. Be on guard. Watch yourselves. So that your hearts will not be weighted down. Your hearts won't be overly burdened, crushed, and numbed to the work of God. And what happens when we become burdened and numbed and crushed by hearts that are weighed down and distracted is that we, in fact, become distracted. 
and we look to anything and everything else, either we look to it for joy, satisfaction, well-being, flourishing, or we look to it as a grave existential threat. It goes both ways. When we, our hearts grow numb to the things of Christ, when we become cold, distracted, then we become idolatrous. Surely this person, this job, this thing will bring me joy, fullness, hope, life. Or this thing is a grave threat to my being. People who see things differently in the world, different political parties, etc., Thing, World War Three. We grow misbalanced. But Jesus tells us to be on guard, to watch our hearts. This is Proverbs 4.23. Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch your heart with all diligence, for from it flow springs of life. All of life flows from your heart, it flows from your deepest commitments, your deepest affections, your deepest loves. All of life is fueled and shaped by that. But when we are weighted down, we become distracted, numb, cold, and cold to the Lord. So we must watch ourselves because we are a grave threat. Jeremiah 17, 9, I'm not going to read it to you, but it talks about our heart is deceptive above all things. It's deceitful above all things. So that if we misalign ourselves, if we lose our sight, or if we follow the course of this world telling you, follow your heart, following your heart without your heart being captivated by the Lord Jesus necessarily will lead you far from him to destruction because your heart is deceitful above all things. So what will weight our hearts? What will bring burdened, crushing numbness to us? There are three things. There's dissipation, which we'll talk about what that means, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Dissipation, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Now, you might think that dissipation, the word does show up in our English Bibles and other places. But this is a different word than those other words. This is the only place in the New Testament this word occurs. And actually, it is um, dissipation. The easiest way to understand what dissipation means, it's not a word that you normally, I I assume, I've never had anyone in in conversation use this word with me. I would be very impressed, but it hasn't happened. Um, But it's to think about the, the verb of it, dissipate. Right? As the fog dissipates. Dissipation at its very core just simply means you're wasting your life. But this word particularly, it, it, in, in, in language, in, in outside of the New Testament Greek language, uh, it's used for a drunken hangover. For a drunken nausea. Remember the days before the Lord Jesus... And when you would drink too much, you would go to sleep and you wake up and the world is just absolutely spinning. And that whole day, that whole day you're just trying to get the world to stop spinning. Some of you know this, some of you don't. But it's interesting that Jesus puts the effect in front of the cause. 
Because some people tell you, right, the, the solution to that is to drink a little bit more. And especially if the, if the drunkenness and the dissipation, if this, if this hangover is as a product of some hurt or longing in life, then it's going to necessarily lead down the same path. It becomes a rhythm of life. Now, while Jesus is using explicit terms about hangovers, some translations say carousing, as though that were a helpful, I never, no one's ever used that word with me either, um, but that basically means like drinking parties. The CSB uses that word, I believe. While Jesus uses explicit terms, he's not just talking about literal drunkenness and literal hangovers. Certainly, those things are under the umbrella. But he's not just talking. Those are, those are, I don't say metaphorical. That's not, that's not helpful. But, but they are, they're pointing to greater realities. That there are other things in this life that will intoxicate us. This is why the New Testament over and over again in different places talks about that we need to be sober-minded. It's not just alcohol that will numb you. Being a workaholic can numb you. Misplacing your affections on your family versus the Lord will numb you. Entertainment, good grief, it's designed to numb you. I just had this conversation with Blanche. If you guys could be a fly on the wall and know how much we talk about you. No, not really. Um, <laughs> most, most of you, we don't do, I'm just kidding. Maybe. Uh, that, <laughs> but that, how entertainment has, I mean, gone from where, when I first grew up, like when I first sort of remember watching TV and to now that what's the capability of my phone in my pocket, right? That we have, as a culture, as we have grown in affluence, we've grown in wealth and stature in some ways that all we've tried to do is is run from life and fall into entertainment now i'm not saying that you should never be entertained right that you should never watch tv that you should never be on social media that you should never never play video games but we have to understand the effects of these things upon us now this isn't a sermon particularly about technology but it will numb your soul and it will distort your vision and that's just, that's just one thing. That's just one element. So all I'm trying to illustrate here is that there are innumerable things in this world, especially when they are misplaced in our lives, that will create a, an intellectual, mental, spiritual drunkenness that leads to a hangover of sorts where the world is spinning and you're not quite sure what's happening. And you run back to the thing that you did before. These things will weight us down, cause us to waste our lives and lose our sight. The most explicit one is the worries of life. If we had time and had a giant whiteboard as big as this thing, we could fill it up with the worries of this life. That's something that I had a friend once tell me that life trends toward complication. It just gets more complicated. As you grow up, you get your own place, you get your own job, you get your, as a pastor, you get your own ministry, then you get to have a wife, and you get your own family, it just gets more complicated. And then as grand, grandparents, I assume, I don't have grandkids, um, but that it, you have another level of concern, another level of complication. And what, what I wish I had, my friend told me, is that along with the complication, there are, there are grave threats to an to a increasing level of 
concern and worry. But the worries of life will cripple us. And it becomes explicit from the rest of Jesus' teaching. The worries of life. Do you remember the parable of the sower? Behold, a man went out to sow seed and he chucked seed all over God's creation. It landed on the path, it landed among the thorns, it landed on the rocks, and it landed on good soil. And you know what happened to the seed that was in the, among the thorns and the briars and the bristle, the thistles? It sprung up, and then what happened? It got the triangle lock choked out. It died. You know what those things were? The worries of life. So many Christians, so many Christians see their spiritual vitality choked out by taking their eyes off of Jesus and on the context and the circumstances of their lives. I'm not telling, that you, telling you that you should not be concerned. That you shouldn't be concerned about your children or your grandchildren or, or your job or your spouse. But there's a way of doing it that honors the Lord. Praying always. So that the peace of Christ that is beyond comprehension. Philippians chapter, what is that? Three, four. So we, but it, there's a way to be concerned that doesn't dishonor the Lord, but bear worry and anxiety dishonors the Lord here in the same way as drunkenness. In the same way as being distracted and numbed and crippled by all sorts of idols in our lives, unplaced, I mean misplaced worry that is not yielded to the Lord in submission will deaden your soul. Because inevitably, what does it mean? It means that you, you have to take your eyes off of Jesus and I've got to figure out this problem. I... I bat, this is a huge battle for me, not only as a, as in my family, which it just increases as we have kids and now we have a dog. And the other day, yesterday, was it yesterday? We have, uh, Henry made my, my middle son, my oldest son, he's my oldest son, my middle child. Uh, we made this little uh, Lego toy and he loved it. Like, but it has all of these tiny little things. And we have a tiny little puppy. He's not that tiny, but he's a puppy. And so yesterday I caught... My, our youngest, James Allen, who y'all got to watch out, okay? Uh, and he was sitting on the floor, but he, I should have known. Everything is a madhouse at our house 98% of the time while people are awake. And, and it was quiet for a second. And I looked down, and James Allen is sitting on the floor with a dog right next to him. And he has that Lego toy, and he's taking one tiny piece off at a time and giving it to the dog. And I was like, I, I have not, um, he, he's, he's gone to the bathroom a couple times today. I have not gone and chased it down. I don't know how long that takes to pass. Hopefully it does, if he actually swallowed it. So I'm like wrestling tiny little blue things out of the dog's mouth. <sighs> um, it's another thing to worry about. You got, but you worry about your kids and then you worry about the country and you worry about future generations and you worry about your marriage and you worry about your job and you worry about, maybe you, you, know, you worry about I don't know what you worry about. There's all sorts of things to worry about. But if those things take precedence in my life, then if, if I am in charge of making those things right in every circumstance, 
then inevitably I've got to fall, my eyes have to fall off of Jesus because part of worshiping Jesus is recognizing that God is sovereign and I am not. There are things that I'm in control of in this life and there's a million, trillion, gazillion, septillion things that I'm not. And I have to yield my concerns on a momentary basis to the Lord as a parent and as a husband. And then as a pastor, good grief. I was just talking to Marion about my hair falling out. This is why I'm growing my beard down here to distract you all from what's happening here. That it's just so easy to get caught up in worry and anxiety. And, and Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 6, I'm not going to read all of it, but it begins in verse 25. It says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he goes all the way down to verses 33 and 34. And you know, 33, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The worries of life will absolutely, absolutely numb you to spiritual realities. Especially as life gets, I mean, you, I mean for us, like we wake up going, right? I won't, I'm not going to tell you what time that, that lovely, beautiful canine woke me up this morning. And I've been awake since. Um, especially with the time change. But um, but that you wake up, go, 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 go to sleep. And if, and if you're just worrying the whole time, there's no space in there for worship. Worry crowds out worship. And all of these things, dissipation, wasting our lives, spinning from where we used to be, drunkenness, finding, finding release, finding purpose, finding joy in other things than God. And a numbness that goes along with it. And the worries of life which accompany life in this fallen world. They will absolutely wreck you. And what I need you to see is that these things aren't just like out there for for unspiritual people who are not as good as you. Because those people don't exist. You're just as bad. And if there's any goodness in you or me, it's the grace of God. But they'll wreck you. And if we're caught up in these three things, we're caught up in these things, the day will come suddenly like a trap. A few, it's probably a year or two into my first pastorate. Um, I, you know, I I started out, I, I took my first church, I was 27. And, um, you come in thinking you know things, and I didn't know anything. I'm reminded daily of how much I actually don't know about anything. But um, I got a phone call from a lady in our church, and she said, will you come to the hospital? My nephew's about to die. Like, he's, he's about to die. And so I'm, you know, I might be, I might be three years, and I might be 30. And uh, I think I was 29. It doesn't matter. And this guy is 42. So he's not much older than I am now. And I walk into the room at one of our local hospitals. I walk into the room. And, and if you've ever been in a hospital room, which I assume, but it's like a narrow hole. There's a, uh, usually a bathroom on some, one side here. And then it kind of opens up, right? 
Well, I, I get to the doorway and passing that bathroom door, I could sketch it to you. Though I see all of the family is in there. And as soon as I pass that bathroom door and I'm entering in that room, that guy breathes his last. 42 years old. As soon as, I mean, it's, I didn't get to, I got to say hey to the lady that I knew. As soon as I got there. 42 years old. And that man was just about as yellow as a dandelion. And he had literally drank himself to death. He was 42 years old. I never met him before. And I had to preach his funeral. There is evidence there of exactly what I'm talking about here. The day will come like a trap to those who are not watching for it. Maybe not the day of the Lord, but the day that you meet the Lord may come like a trap. It's so easy to believe that you have more time. That somehow the odds are in your favor. Or they might not be at this point in your life. And I've heard it said that one of the pastor's job is to prepare his people to prepare his people to die. And so, dear one, do not let that day come on you like a trap. It might be an instant. It could be like a snapping of the fingers. And the Lord brings you home to glory, or you might have a, God forbid, some long struggle to get there. But be on your guard. Look up to Jesus, not down to your circumstances, and be prepared for the day that you meet the Lord. Repent of your sins and believe upon Christ alone. Trust Him alone. It will come like a trap, like a bear trap closes on the leg of an animal. And there will be no escape. That's so, it should sober us. That should sober us. If we are somehow drunk on this world, that reality, that reality should sober us. It should give a little bit of an opening of the curtains and say, here's what life is really about. Do you know Christ? Is he, has he changed your heart? Is he living in your heart? Are you living in him as scripture talks about? Or is it all just a show? Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25, which Matthew 25 is immediately after Matthew 24. I give you all of the good insights. You're welcome. Um, but in, in Matthew, in the way Matthew's gospel works is that Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse that we're closing up today, but it opens up to this bigger teaching on the end, on the day of the Lord, in the end of 24 and into the chapter 25. So chapter 25 of Matthew is explicitly about Jesus' second coming. And at the very beginning of the chapter, he tells a parable called the parable of the ten virgins. Some of you may be aware, you may not go read it this afternoon. Um, but he tells the story of, of, of these ten virgins who are looking for the bridegroom. 
They're anticipating his arrival. And some of, five of them have enough oil. Five of them don't have enough oil. So five of them run out of oil before he gets there. And so they're not prepared. And so they have to leave to go to Walmart and to get some oil and come back. It's not Walmart, but anyways. But by the time they come back, by the time they try to, to recoup their lack of preparedness, it's too late. The door that was once open is now closed and they cannot come in. So dear ones, be prepared. <clears throat> be prepared. And the second half of this passage is much the same. Verse 36, be on the alert. And how are we on the alert? What are we looking to? What are the, what are the rhythms of our life? How does, how does watchfulness bear out in the life of a Christian? Be on the alert, verse 36, at all times, praying. Praying that you might have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is not, this is not, this is not, you know, like you're calling in and you're picking off the menu. Like too often our prayers are like, all right, I want a little bit of happiness, a little bit of joy, a little bit of health. And, uh, and just, my, you know, minus the pain. I'll be there in 25 minutes. And this is how we treat our prayer life with God. But this prayer is different than that. This is not a vending machine prayer. The way that watchfulness lives out is that we, we flee from the things that will numb and crush us. We flee from the hangovers. We flee from the drunkenness, literal and metaphorical. We flee from being entrapped by the worries of life and we pursue God in dependent prayer. We're recognizing that if we will escape, this is what prayer does. Prayer is, a, is, a, is an explicit acknowledgement of our lack of sufficiency. Or to say it differently, prayer explicitly displays our dependence. Why else would you pray? If you're not praying for God to give you the 50 cents Coke, 50 cent Coke can that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but, you know, just hit the thing on the, here's my 25 cents, my 50 cents. Now it's like $1.50 if you want a canned drink out of a vending machine. And give me my stuff. But if we're under the realization that the day of the Lord is coming, and if the day of the Lord doesn't come, the day of my death when I will meet the Lord is coming, then I'm going to pray differently. I'm going to pray, God, save me from the drunken influences of this world. Save me more, I guess, more graphically, from the sin that is in my own heart. Save me from my own penchant to run away, though I'm prone to wander, as the hymn says. Save me from that. Rescue me. Help me to escape. That I may stand before the Lord. Prayer is an acknowledgement that God is the sovereign Savior. Why else would I pray? If I believe that I can do it myself, I can say, God, just give me Give me my health and my wealth and my stuff, and I'm going to work this out. No prayer saying, Jesus, I can't. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I am morally bankrupt by myself, but only by your regenerating goodness is there anything in me that's plaudible. It's only of Christ. Prayer is a demonstration that only Christ saves. Only Christ can give us grace to persevere through sickness, 
through cancer, through suffering, through grief, through cultural and social upheaval, only Christ can deliver us. But dear ones, here's the wonderful, beautiful truth. Not only is it only Christ who can deliver us, but Christ promises to deliver us. He promises to hold us fast in His hand. That He will not let us go. He promises us earlier in the chapter that not a hair from our head, not a hair from our head will perish. In verse 17, He promises us to preserve us. That Christ Himself is our ark as we float on the waves of the wrath of God being demonstrated among the unrighteousness of men. So pray. Pray for strength. Pray for deliverance. Pray to stand before the Lord. But when you stand, dear ones, in that day, know you will not stand alone. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing You catch it? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we stand in that day, we will finally realize the great cloud of witnesses, those that have gone on before, those who are present with us here now, and those who will come after us. And we will stand before the Lord and we will worship, saying salvation belongs to God. He is our sovereign Savior. He has seen us through. No power of hell can have, could have, though the powers of hell tried to grip us, and though the deceitfulness of this world tried to trick us, and though our own hearts would pull us away, Christ has preserved us and Christ has saved us. And Christ alone is the Savior. There is one mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus. So how will you prepare yourself for that day? For the day of the Lord or the day that you enter into eternity? How will you prepare? If you are not right with Jesus, get right with Jesus. Repent and believe. It's not complicated, but it is earth shattering. Leave your sins behind and say, only do I trust in Christ, not my own strength, not my own goodness, not my own works, but only what Christ has done for me on the cross and that he rose three days later. And he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father and he has given the promise that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Christian, watch yourselves. Though Christ preserves us, We can be neutralized in this world. We can be neutralized by dissipation, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Watch your hearts. What's your foremost concern? What's your deepest worry this morning? Leave that here. And may your deepest concern become the glory of God. May your deepest concern be what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. Lift up your hearts and lift up your eyes to him. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would, where we are numbed, cold, distracted, would you awaken us? Would we hear the words of Ephesians 5 to awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you? If there are some here who have been bound in the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of their own hearts, so that they have been self-satisfied and self-righteous, believing that they do not need Jesus, I pray, O Lord, that you would shatter that self-satisfaction and show them their desperate need for Christ. For those who are so anxious, anxious for this world or anxious for things in their own body, things in their own families, would they find peace? Peace, knowing that they can entrust those things to you, that you are our good Father. You will give us what we need. You will order our days. Give us grace through the midst of our worries to lay those down and to seek first your kingdom. Lord, we pray that this morning you would do your work in us, that you would accomplish your will by the power of your spirit through your word, and that you would bind out the adversary that he would not remove the seed of the gospel that has been sown this day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.